On the topic of, uh, well, the three waters repeal, how can councils possibly look after water when they're the ones who let the water get into the state now? That's from Stephen. National is just doing three waters under another name. And today's three waters repeal, uh, says Andy, is the first step towards privatisation of water in New Zealand. Councils are being set up to fail in their own funding efforts and private enterprise will take over. Watch then for huge water price increases all around. Okay, keep that feedback coming. 2101 emails the panel at rnz.co.nz. To our next story topic situation six deaths in Fitianga highlighting influenza's devastating risk to rest homes. A rest home in Fitianga has reported the deaths of six residents after the influenza A virus was first detected there on January 28th. So that's just over two weeks ago. Fitianga Care Centre and Village says it had procedures in place for such outbreaks and worked closely with Te Whatu Water to follow infection control procedures, deep cleaning, isolating people with symptoms, staff wearing PPE, full PPE. And, of course, we're familiar with infection control procedures, aren't we? We are. COVID-19 has definitely ensured that we know what they are. So what do we need to remember or what do we need to know about influenza and specifically influenza A virus? And what other viruses are out there that we also need to know of? To join us, and it's great to speak with you again, Otago University epidemiologist Professor Michael Baker. Kia ora. Kia ora, Susanna. This is a very sad time for these families and the carers of these six people. How often do people die from influenza A virus in New Zealand? Yes, well, this is a devastating outbreak, and it just shows how vulnerable people are in these facilities. I mean, if you just look at the numbers, um, 18 people got infected, so that's a, uh, or six out of the 18 died, so that's the case fatality risk is about 30%. It just shows how devastating it was. And uh, also around 18 of those residents got uh, infected, so that's almost a 40% attack rate. So it just shows how dreadful this virus is when it gets into rest homes. Um, If we look at the situation every year in New Zealand, uh, influenza results in about 500 deaths, but most of those are over winter uh, and uh, generally in older age populations. Is that, Michael, is that sort of what carries older people off or is it completely unrelated to their fragility because of age? It's very much related to age and fragility and underlying illness. And the added um, problem in these facilities is you have a whole lot of people who are very vulnerable or living in close close confines. So the virus spreads very quickly. Uh, So you've got those two problems and that's why we see these kind of outbreaks. So flu deaths went down during COVID, didn't they? So we, it's like we know what to do to stop it. Yes, well, uh, exactly. Um, uh, influenza does not need to cause this level of mortality. That's what we learned during the pandemic. Of course, we wouldn't be able to recreate those exact conditions because uh, flu basically disappeared from New Zealand for almost two years, and that was because of the uh, elimination strategy which stopped all of these respiratory viruses for that period. And so we, uh, it's one reason why we saw actually a net decline in mortality in New Zealand for two successive years. So what's the way forward to stop this happening with flu or any respiratory disease of this nature in a, in a well, old folks' home? Yeah. Yes, I think basically you've got to keep the virus out of these facilities. And that means 
just paying a huge amount of attention to preventing people coming in when they're infected, when they have symptoms. And that means basically it's visitors, it's staff, it's, trans, it's patients who are transferred in. That's how the virus gets into these environments. And unfortunately, it can be very hard to control it. I'm sure the staff did everything they could there to limit transmission. But sometimes it takes a couple of days before you realise that, that someone there with an elderly person who's got some respiratory symptoms um, actually has the flu and you have to do a, a test, which can take another day. And by that stage, you may have lots of people infected. Uh, of course, we know the precautions you take after that. We're very familiar with the drill. And, of course, I would hope that everyone here has been vaccinated. That's the, the first thing. And then you, you, know, you isolate people and staff wear masks and so on. But often it's, it's getting quite late by the time the virus is actually starting to circulate. Michael, will, will our muscle memory from COVID, do you think, help reduce the total number of flu deaths in the future? When, when will you get the figures to show that we perhaps have learnt some of the lessons and that we're carrying this on? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I think we have learned a lot more about respiratory viruses and the fact that, you know, when you're in any indoor environment that's enclosed, we're all breathing the same air. And now we're encouraging people to have CO2 monitors. And if the level gets above a certain point, it means you're re-breathing a lot of other people's air. And we haven't really been conscious of that before. I mean, we may not want to think about it. It's a bit like how we got rid of... um, outbreaks in swimming pools in New Zealand because we became aware that we were sharing that water with other people and we've actually got rid of uh, a lot of the transmission swimming pools and now we have to do the same with indoor air and all these environments where there are vulnerable people. So what needs to happen when you're talking about shared air in communal spaces, what do we need to be aware uh, aware of? Well, I I think uh, basically having uh, ventilation standards and if you've got very vulnerable people thinking about air filtration, uh, it's particularly important in, uh, I think, places like public transport where um, there's actually, you know, we've done air monitoring those environments and the CO2 levels are extremely high. So people who are regularly commuting in buses and trains will be at high risk of getting these infections. And that's why... Uh, you do have to wear masks, I think, in that environment. But obviously, in normal living environments like aged care facilities, um, you know, people don't—they shouldn't be having to wear masks. So obviously, they're not. So you've got to really think about what barriers you can put in place. So it does mean just thinking quite strategically about all these environments that we have people living in. Do these aged care facilities have these um, air filters and CO2 monitors in them? And if if they don't, should they? Uh, I don't think they they necessarily would. And uh, um, this is a special environment where I think the the big focus needs to be on uh, making sure people coming in don't bring the virus. And that does mean testing and um, just looking out for symptoms and so on, really emphasising that. Uh, How do you get a flu test? Well, the, at the moment, uh, you'd have to have a swab and that would have to go off for a test. So that can take um, a day or so. But one of the big revolutions now, of course, are these rapid tests. And there are now rapid tests that don't just do COVID-19, but they do influenza and they do RSV as well. And they're being piloted in New Zealand and other places. And I think that'll be a big step forward uh, if you want to screen people going into these places. Thank you.
Good to have the update, Michael. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Professor Michael Baker there speaking about the threat of influenza A. It's always good to be reminded, isn't it? Just to remember what's out there lurking around. Because in some ways I feel that we've had COVID-19. Yeah, we're all good now. So we're all good yeah. now. I, even though I know that sounds silly because yeah. I've had it twice and that's not <laughs> been fun either time. And it's still rampant. We just don't really talk about it. Yeah, anymore. I was shocked. That I, I heard that statistic before during COVID about 500 deaths. I, did anyone else know there were 500 deaths a year from flu? I didn't before. Mm. Before I didn't. I didn't know that. And I heard that during COVID. But also the point that you were raising, and yes, exactly, Alexia, about how these numbers dropped so dramatically. And of course, Michael mentioned that there while we were being so vigilant yeah, but in we preventing can't replicate the spread. That. I no, mean, we were know, locked we down. It was. Yeah. I mean, I kept the bus to and from work every day, and uh, gosh, I could count on one finger the number of people that I've seen wearing. A mask in the last few months. Do you wear a mask? No, can't stand them. Can't, mm-hmm. And you know, I really got to my limit during COVID, and um, I just don't want to wear another mask ever in my life, which is really dumb. I know. Yeah, but you feel like but, what you feel like, right? I am no, bulletproof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Sorry, Michael, if you're still listening. <laughs> Andrew, are you a mask wearer? Oh, I'm the same. I, I wore one when I was asked to wear one, and the moment I didn't, wasn't asked to wear one, I didn't. I, I, that's probably the majority of people. I would think, yeah. So not a fan of them, but I did what I was asked to do. I was quite religious wearing masks and had a, had a nice sort of set of masks that I wore for quite a lot of the time because I was coming in to work here in the studios. Um, but then it was quite strange when I stopped wearing them. It sort of happened without any sort of warning. And I still question myself as to why I don't put a mask on. I always have one in my bag. So it's all right if you've got a big nose and it's not sticking to your face. Those of us who've got little snub noses, they're very uncomfortable and cloying. Luckily my schnoz is a decent size. No, I feel like I have a snub nose too. So, yeah, to be continued, Alexia. (laughs) Let's go to our next topic. There are renewed calls for a ban on greyhound racing in New Zealand. The greyhound racing season began in August and since then dogs have received 5,051 injuries, including 65 fractures, and there have been six deaths. In recent weeks, two dogs have died during race days. These are race days in Christchurch. The Greyhound Protection League of New Zealand's Aaron Cross is with us now. Kia ora, Aaron. Hi there. Thanks for having me on the show. Good to have you on the programme. Thank you. Uh, while they were campaigning during the election run-up of 2023, now Prime Minister Christopher Luxon said greyhound racing should be banned. Have you heard from Christopher Luxon lately? Oh, I think he's a man with a, a bit on his plate at the moment, but um, I do I do recall the uh, statement he made, and I think that that does uh, give credence to the cross-party support that we do have for a prohibition on uh, commercial greyhound racing in New Zealand. And, uh, yeah, I do acknowledge uh, Mr Luxon's statement and thank him for it. Tell us about greyhound racing in New Zealand. How often does it happen and how many dogs are competing? So it's happening pretty much every day except Saturday. And some days there are two race events. So you'll have a race in the north and a race in the south, each of which will involve in excess of 100 dogs. So it's not an every so often on a Sunday sort of thing for the family. It's all the time. It's, it's a, a pumping machine, so to speak. And uh, in terms of the racing population, I can't give you an exact finger, perhaps um, someone from GRNZ, but it's, it's just north of a couple of thousand dogs in total in the racing population, I understand. So animal charity SAFE, they've been reporting that dogs 
experience extreme suffering in the racing industry and they put the figure of 40% of dogs racing have suffered an injury. Do those figures match what you have in your records? That, that's correct, and I've, I have verified that just prior to this phone call, so I, I can confirm that it it is a very high percentage for... Um... Oh, are you still there? Aaron, please don't have oh. disappeared. Hold on a second. Keep talking, Aaron. Always having oh. straight... Are you in Christchurch? No. Uh, no, I'm not actually, but um, I Did do you just have... move your head? There you are anyway. Just keep going. <laughs> keep going. Well, I... Slightly sketchy reception. So 40% is correct in that um, there is 40% of, of dogs in the racing population that wind up injured as a result of racing activity. And why don't we see the same problems in horse racing? What is it about greyhounds that they're more vulnerable? I think that it's really about the spotlight, to be honest, and I don't think horse racing could walk away with a clean conscience if we were to really have a, a good look at what's happening there. Yeah, they wouldn't have There's, a 40% figure, though, would they? Uh, I, honestly, I couldn't say. It's been so overwhelming keeping up with this, this one issue that I haven't had the capacity to, to stretch. But you could ask other organisations like the Coalition for Protection of Racehorses, and they would have that information. But what I can say is that there are a lot more charges from the ROB coming towards horse racing and excess whipping and that sort of thing uh, in the horse racing code than there is in greyhound racing. I think the greyhound racing industry has problems around its kenneling and, and just its general standards, and that's where the ROB focuses. But the horse racing has its issues. Um, perhaps it's a story for another day. Is there any point... So they've they've improved on their safety record, the greyhound industry. Clearly, it's still not good enough. Would there is there anything they could do to get it down to a point that would be acceptable, where injury or death was so infrequent that it was okay? Is that is that a physical possibility or just not? Just just stepping back for a sec, I'll just make the point that it, we had to drag them kicking and screaming into this reform process, mm. and that they certainly did not come willingly. It was 2011 mm. when I was sitting in the GRNZ offices with the general manager pointing out the same issues that I'm probably going to raise with you today about um, excess uh, dogs and, and not, not enough viable outcomes post-racing and, and severe injuries that are catastrophic for these animals uh, during their careers. Now, to, to, if we want to get it down to so, sort of a, an acceptable level, then we're talking about harm minimalization. And unfortunately, it's one of those scales where the less, the less you do it, the less harm there is right down until you get to point zero. Right. And, uh, and of course, the industry itself wants to be financially viable. So it's actually pushing them the other direction. And there's already talk of there not being enough dogs to sustain racing. So it's a bit of a to and a fro. And we have to, we've had to drag them kicking and screaming this far. But do you, do you sorry? Do you think there's any any practices, even if it was the same number of dogs, any practices that could that could lower it down to you know next to nothing, or is that just just not going to happen because of the event itself? Well, there's a lot of things that could be done. I mean, all, all the tracks currently in operation are, are curved tracks, and there seems to be a lot of uh, collisions and injuries caused right. by the corners in racing, for example. Um, you'd, you'd have to speak with um, experts on the surface of, of race tracks, And um, from what I've seen, the industry has tried everything. And right now we're um, looking at worse injuries over the last six months than there was uh, this time last year. And uh, we're on track for another high uh, 
injury record this year as well. So everything's been tried. You know, credit to the industry. They did try. They weren't ambitious enough. Um, they didn't really have the right motivations from the outset. Uh, but we are in a situation where there's no way to fix this. And if the government doesn't ban it, the big question is, well, what are they going to do to try and fix this? And, you know, we still have problems with injuries. We still have too many dogs needing uh, rehomed. Even this year, the Greyhounds as Pets annual fundraiser was saying that it's they need help more than ever. So, you know, this, this is quite an ongoing issue, and there's only one remedy as far as we're concerned. I'm sure Wallace will come back to you on this as this topic situation evolves this year. Thanks very much for your time today, Aaron. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Aaron Cross there from the Greyhound Protection League. It's coming up to eight minutes to five. I just want to mention a couple of texts. Stupidity. As a GP, I continue to wear a mask all day at work. Please send a better message with ongoing high levels of COVID in the community. I feel like I've been told off now. I do too, and I appreciate that. And another texter, very surprised by the discussion about masks. No question they lower risks in enclosed areas, and New Zealand is still at high levels after a summer peak. I wear a mask in high-risk situations every day. For many people, COVID is still very severe. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Next topic, as we come close to the end of the program, which always happens so quickly, there's a new game on the shores of Lake Taupo, a custom-built air-powered golf ball launcher, which has taken almost a year to make. It's the latest in the lineup of competitions at Taupo Hole-in-One. Prize money for a lucky punter can be up to $10,000 a pop. To tell us about the latest winning opportunity and streak, apparently there have been some recent winners, Hayden Porter, Topo Moana Group. Tēnākwe, Hayden. Kia Now, I understand in the past month you've had to give away prize money to the total of $20,000. Is, is this uh, opportunity of the Topo Hole-in-One hard enough? Can you afford <laughs> to keep going at this rate? <laughs> Yeah, we we can we can certainly uh, keep keep going at that rate. We had about one hundred and fifty thousand golf balls hit um, in January alone. So, um, so yeah, we had two lucky winners in the in the last month, um, and we've actually had three in the last year uh, there as well. So, yeah, maybe we need to look at the redesign of the holes a little bit and make it a bit harder. I don't know, but um, it's a really popular attraction and. Uh, We've just added a new uh, product to that called the Ball Blaster. Um, well, yes, this is this custom-built air-powered golf ball launcher. Is that right? Have I got the description <laughs> accurate yeah. enough there? <laughs> That's right. It's a bit of a fun one. Uh, it's probably one of those Kiwi Ingenuity uh, uh, attractions that came up, uh, you know, like one one evening. Uh, but um, we've turned it into something real, and it's been um, phenomenally uh, popular with uh, visitors to the region uh, alike. So, so is it the same deal where you have to try to pop the golf ball from the gun into the hole? Is that, the, is that, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Exactly what we realised. On the pontoon. Yeah. On the pon- on, onto the pontoon. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what we realised is after, you know, le- nearly 30 years of uh, operation there, we're actually not catering to everyone that visits um, Topol. So there's, there's lots of people who don't know how to swing a golf club. There's um, there's kids, there's a whole uh, separate audience. So we thought about trying to come up with something that would entertain them uh, at the same time, and, and this is where we've sort of landed. I've got to say, because um, I'm part 14-year-old boy, it sounds awesome. It just sounds <laughs> awesome. And I've just had a thought that wraps into the other topics that we've had here today. For any blokes in Taupo that are struggling to think of something romantic to do this evening, 
take her to the new uh, gas-powered ball. Just, I think. just stop there. Just, just stop uh, there. Uh, I, I was like, going yeah. to use my imagination. <laughs> and I think, how about that, romance lovers down in Taupo? Take the... No, I'm getting some filthy looks here in your studio. No, we're just we're wondering how long you're going to go with that. <laughs> Hayden, I have a question that I've actually had all day since we were talking about this topic. What yeah. happens with all these golf balls? Because 150,000 yeah, fired the into the lake and not all of them clearly hitting the mark. Most of them, in fact, not. What, what's the process there for retrieving them or do they just stay on the bottom of the lake? Uh, no, no, we retrieve every single one of them. Um, so they go within a, a sort of a radius, um, you know, area, and there's a little bit of a natural uh, fall on the on the lake where they a lot of them sort of end up congregating. I mean, literally, we have a diver that goes down and collects them up every and, day, uh, uh, often several times a day in several yeah, several I've, I've divers. Seen go down. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a free dive. They're, they're free diving mostly, and then for the deeper uh, areas, they actually pop some tanks on and and go down there and clear that out sort of once a week or or go. so. But but uh, they wear little crash helmets and. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's quite quite entertaining just watching the divers. Yeah, so. another thing to do in beautiful Topo, where you could just go for a romantic walk along the lakefront at sunset. Wow, I'm feeling some tension in the studio, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. God, there's nothing like holding hands and firing the golf ball gun and, and firing a golf ball blaster. He's, he's yeah, hearing me. Yeah, that's <laughs> pretty. It's kind of where the idea, you know, came from. <laughs> Babe, have I got an idea for tonight? Down the waterfront. What, you know? What's your ratio of men to women who want to do this? Uh, it's surprisingly balanced, See? Uh, I would say. And what's been really interesting is that we get uh, a lot of the guys that are golfers is that if they just cannot resist having a go on this <laughs> as well. So they'll get a bucket of balls and they go, okay, that didn't work. Give me the blaster. Yep. And, um, and it's quite therapeutic because you sort of uh, – you can power this thing up. It's got an LED screen that the pressure sort of builds and you can decide when you want to let it go. Hayden, we've just had a text to uh, get in touch. Shooting golf balls into a magnificent lake. Uh, of course, it's gone and moved. Into a magnificent lake does not send a helpful message about respecting our environment. We, I can clearly t- um, tell you that it's very environmentally friendly. Um, you know we're very conscious of the lake. The same owners of the of the business, which is um, the local Iwi Ngāti Tūwhiritoa, um, also own the lake uh, as well. So we're very respectful of that. It's been there for about thirty years, um, so it's 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 not a new thing. Hayden, thank you very much. That was quite a bit of fun. Much appreciated. And also, thank you. Just had uh, someone text in to say that the number of injuries in the greyhound racing industry since August 2023 is 551. So thank you for making that note. I had a typo in my work. So it's 551 injuries to greyhounds, which the person is saying is still a significant number. We had friends who had a, a rehomed greyhound, absolutely beautiful, gentle dogs, but you have to take them to a beach with endings because otherwise they just keep running. Oh. it's in the DNA, literally, right? Yeah. Perhaps a greyhound is a nice gift for Valentine's Day. There you go. Just a thought. You Thank you both for your company. Absolutely Thank you welcome. very much for listening. <laughs> Checkpoint is next.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.